Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who along with Daryl Morey co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Thank you for joining us today at the 2020 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Bobby Rizzo. I'm a first year MBA student at MIT Sloan. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to our panel, Fanalytics 2.0. Our moderators today, or our panelists today, excuse me, will be Richard Gotham, the team president with the Boston Celtics, Rob King, senior vice president and editor at large at ESPN, Jess Gelman, CEO of Craft Analytics Group, Jason Robbins, CEO and founder of DraftKings, and the panel will be moderated by Allison Overholt. Senior Vice President, Multi-Platform Storytelling and Journalism with ESPN. The panel will run for 45 minutes, and we'll have 10 minutes at the end for Q&A. If you'd like to submit a question, please do so on Twitter using our hashtag Fanalytics. Uh, those questions submitted with the top mentions will be selected by our moderator. And now I'll go ahead and turn it over to Allison. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone, for being here with us today. Really excited to have this conversation. Uh, welcome to Fanalytics. It's our panel on the home field advantage, our clever way of describing how fans engage with their favorite teams and what we've learned about how to quantify fan behavior so that teams, leagues, media entities, and consumer brands can develop the smartest possible strategies for how to keep fans close. So in preparing for today, a fun thread emerged around rewinding to 2013, which is the last time that this panel um, took the stage here at Sloan. It's worth revisiting that for a minute just to frame up the quantum leaps that we've taken in understanding fans and what fans really want. So five things to get us started today. Number one, Jess and Rob did share the stage on that same panel in 2013, so some things do stay constant. <laughs> Number two, in 2013, this panel was called e-marketing. So let that, let that sit for just a second. We'll take fanalytics, I think. All right, number three, in 2013, OTT strategy wasn't, quote, a thing. It's a direct quote from our prep conversation. And according to Jess, the panel spent a lot of time talking web traffic and completely anonymized data. Also, not a thing, social media marketing. People didn't really even think about it. And lastly, number five, in 2013, legalized sports betting was just a glimmer of a dream. So with that as a backdrop, let's dive in. Okay, let's talk, all of you. How have fans changed? I'll start. Right sure. Um, or do you want to start? Okay. You start, Jeff. The, bi the biggest thing from my perspective today is, I'll call it the experiential economy. So we have people wanting to come to games and have instant, personalized experiences that they can brag about. That's the biggest change, in my opinion, and I think most People want to be able to show that they were on social media, that they had this great experience, they want to talk about it. The implications of that in terms of what fans are consuming and what, the, what we need to do as a, as a business is first, we got to make sure the Wi-Fi is good in the venues. We got to make sure that there's um, consistency in how we can communicate and personalize that communication to them. And um, we, gotta, we, gotta, we have to be able to communicate as closely to what they want as possible. I would, I would say, you know, fans are consumers and all the same changes you see in consumer behavior, you see in fan behavior. So um, on-demand frictionless services, 
you know, curated, which is the, you know, the word these days, curated experiences, unique access, customization of experience. Those are all things that are, I don't think they're just unique to Gen Z. We, we tend to talk about those as a, there's this sort of new generation of fans that consumes everything a little bit differently than even people five years, 10 years older than them. Um, I think in, in generally that's the shift and, uh, and it's something that we've really, you know, taken note of as we think about how do we, you know, keep our fans happy? How do we service and retain our, our customers? Yeah, I'd like to go back to 2013 really quickly before I answer this, because uh, at that time, we talked a lot about the research we did that told us who our fans were. Uh, in 2010, when LeBron made the decision, that's, that led us to create uh, something on ESPN.com called the Heat Index, mm -hmm. which was just a, a, an attempt to assign some reporters, and some of them may be in the room, to cover that team, right? By the end of that season, we found out that more than half of all of our page views in the NBA were heat-related. Mm. So that told us that, to Jess's point, maybe there was something to personalization after all, and that led us to form a team of people to look at all this time that was spent with all of our content. And at the end, we learned that uh, more than 80% of our entire audience came through the doorway of six sports, and 100 teams. And of those 100 teams, 30, 31 of the 32 NFL teams were in the top 100, mm -hmm. which led us to think we should cover NFL teams team by team. We decided to cover the Jacksonville Jaguars anyway. <laughs> um, and now we can tell you that there are 4 million people who have registered as Yankees fans and 4 million people who have registered as Cowboys fans and you know, 441,000 Blue Jays fans. But to the point that was raised here, just knowing that isn't quite enough. We have to kind of understand what we see now in terms of the way in which they come to that stuff. And in 2015, you know, there's some good news. 2015, eight people 18 and older were, were consuming about nine and a half hours of, of media a day. Uh, and then flash forward to today, that's up to like 11 and a half hours. But the difference is uh, television sort of decreased by 44 minutes and mobile consumption increased by like two and a half hours. Mm -hmm. So again, talking about website traffic is not what we need to be doing. It's really about figuring out how to be in those spaces that kind of are in your back pockets. And then layering in personalized experiences and then going even further and being able to be where you want us to be before you even ask, right. which, is, which is difficult, but there are companies that manage to do it. Every meaningful, every meaningful business thing we, we spend time with, whether it's eBay or Amazon or others, you know, are in this space. And so audience expectation to me is the thing that has changed the most. So what with all of that as our starting point, how have those things changed the way you think about what data is actually important to gather? I think connectivity has changed everything, including uh, what kind of data you can access. People have their phones with them always. Um, so, you know, at any point in time, they are usually, if not interacting, uh, you know, probably somebody in their ecosystem is interacting and uh, you have location data, other things that you can use even when they're not and when it's passive. Um, but if you, if you think about the experience, back to the question before, of going to a game, 
Um, I remember when you used to go to a game and actually just sit there and watch the game, or maybe you talk to the people that were next to you, and now people are taking pictures and uh, you know, posting them on Instagram, and uh, you know, I don't know how much anymore, but uh, you know, maybe still Facebook in some cases. Maybe in 2013 they were posting on Facebook, but <laughs> now the expectation is that uh, you, know, you have Wi-Fi connections in the stadium, and that people are able to constantly, whether they're there anywhere else, not only be in communication with their friends and with uh, you know, others, but actually be in communication with anonymous people who share their interests, because personalization and data has allowed us to connect people in a way that never existed before. And I think that's transformed the fan experience. In a way, it's really the same core thing we were getting at before. It used to be people gathering around the water cooler mm -hmm. and talking uh, on the next day. Now it's just transformed into something so much bigger. But at our core, we all always wanted to interact. We all always wanted to have an opinion. We all always wanted to share experiences with others. And um, you know, it used to be that photos were something you had in your house. Now um, you know, they're for posting online. But it's all still part of the same thing. I wanted to share with you that I was there and that this thing happened, um, and you know you can get a glimpse of what my experience might be like. I think we talk about two things, attending the game and viewing the game. So if we think about attending the game, the most significant thing is actually knowing who the people are. We, I, we heard about it a little bit earlier today, but in 2013, frankly, in 2016, maybe 17, you would know one of four people at a game, maybe. And that would because, be because someone would buy a ticket for themselves and the, and the three other people attending the game. Today, you heard Amy Latimer say that at the Garden, now for Bruins games, maybe for Celtics games too, they know 85% of the people coming, coming to games. It's not as high with some of our other clients, like the NFL. It's, it's, it can be, again, pending the team, anywhere from 20% up into 70%. So knowing the customers is uh, the most important piece of new data that is now available, and the, the depth of which you can get information about what they're doing, who they're transferring their tickets to, um, if they're posting their tickets on the secondary, if those tickets are actually selling, is incredible. On the watching side, I mean, listen, I'm an ESPN app person, and I love that I can go and Harvard basketball is, is there front and center, and I can get that quick update. You guys can actually see if I watch the video, if I pause the video, if I watch it again. So I'm, from a watching perspective, making sure that you're providing more of the things that I like is phenomenal from a, from a fan and customer perspective. I, I agree with all that. You know, the uh, mobile uh, technology has changed everything and uh, particularly has given us insights into our business that we would never otherwise have. I mean, the most fundamental thing is actually who's your customer. You don't know who's watching you on television. You don't know who's sitting in your seats at your game. And just the fact that I would say recently is three years ago, instead of having 85% coming through the door mobile, we know who's sitting in the seat. It was more like 15%, right? So the, it's, it's been crazy. And, and that unlocks a whole bunch of information about how you can better service that fan if you know who's coming in, who's using the seat. If, um, you know, it's, it's an event or an anniversary, you can visit them. If they've passed along to someone else, you can start to form a relationship with that person. You can understand when they're making a decision as to whether or not they're going to attend the game themselves or resell the ticket. Um, there's, you know, you get a, a good sense of uh, the value of a ticket as it flows through uh, from one place to another and uh, the, really the timing of when people are making decisions about when they're going to transact, when they're going to purchase. We're seeing more and more people as last-minute buyers as sort of the consumption trends change and, you know, with this sort of frictionless world with mobile technology, the ability to move tickets quickly and easily. Um, and, and these 
all these things provide us so much insight into our business that we never had before, which, you know, unto itself isn't all that meaningful, but to the extent it allows you to actually provide a better experience, provide better service, because you know who's there, is, uh, it's, it's really revolutionized things, and pretty remarkably just in the last three years, I'd say. So let's spend some more time talking about ticketing. What other patterns are we seeing around ticket purchasing? What other things are we learning um, from what you're able to now track given all the tools that we just talked about? Um, so we, we have uh, a large uh, technology project that we've done with the NFL and we're integrating all of their primary and secondary ticketing data. And I think the question we've been talking about going and servicing people and that type of work, the, what, what the NFL is doing and what we're able to help them do is understand where, where the health of their stadium is. And I think if you think about that on a more macro level, um, you have a couple level, levers that you can pull for customer experience. What is the ticket demand, price? Where are there challenges in your venue that you might want to actually make upgrades, which, um, which many venues are doing? Um, where do you want to spend your time and kind of understanding what the customer challenges are So we actually worked with the NFL and created uh, a ticketing health index. Mm -hmm. So historically when you would make those kinds of uh, Decisions you would use something like retention or you would use attendance and you might do some correlations We use machine learning and took hundreds of variables because we have all of this personalized data about about the customer and so it could be a season ticket member who might be posting their tickets the week of the game. Uh, you can understand if those tickets actually sold or, or did not sell. And if it did not sell, did they attend the game? Um, adding in some factors such as whether they sat in an aisle seat or in the center. Uh, there's so much information. But we, we've been, this is actually rolling out to across the league uh, that all the teams will have it, I think, next week. And they'll be able to make more informed decisions based on that. So I think we're, in terms of our knowledge, we're taking everything to a different level and applying it in a, in a more meaningful way. And I think in, in the team business, you know, there's only, there's a finite amount of assets, right? You've got only whatever, 40 to 50 home games, you know, per season. You've only got you know, 19,000 seats in the arena. So the game is all about trying to maximize the yield against those finite assets. That's how you grow. And um, being able to track a ticket and understand by pulling all this information out of the secondary market, what the real value of a ticket is at a given point in time really informs your decisions about when you should release tickets, what's the you know, market clearing price, what's the time to release a ticket to get the maximum price for a ticket. So after we've sold all of our season tickets and you know, we've filled our group tickets and all those things, you know, we hold some back and we say, when should we release these? And there was a time when um, we knew that the, you could get the maximum price if you release tickets about 11 or 12 days before the, the date of the event, and that's no longer true. People aren't even buying in that window anymore. They're buying when tickets go on sale, and then they're buying the day of, and you have to figure out, okay, you know, I've got to manage uh, accordingly, and I've got to price accordingly based on when demand is spiking for tickets. Uh, so again, it's, you know, if you're in the team business, it's incredibly valuable information. I sit around saying, well, how do, how do we actually operate our business before I had all this data? <laughs> 50% of tickets that are sold on the secondary are sold in the last three days. But it, it can be the highest price depending on the mm -hmm. interest of, and demand of that game. Otherwise, right. you should have your highest price when you go on sale because that's when there's the most interest. 
Got it. So let's talk a little bit more about other aspects of the in-venue experience. What kinds of things are you seeing change about the way fans spend their time when they're at the game? I think experiences, um, you know, are, are big. You know, when we, we look at a fan, we sort of say it's, you know, it's a relationship, not a transaction. And so we want to understand really for each individual fan to the extent that we can, you know, what, what creates a great experience for them and what kind of access, amenities, and benefits around the game can we deliver that allows them to, you know, have a differentiated experience so it's more than just going to a game. Uh, and, and I think that's um, been a real change in our business as to how we look at service. And one of the, you know, the big things we've done is we've put more and more people on the service side of things to try to deliver more customized experiences. And it's not always the most scalable things that you can do, but it's the little things you can do because you know a customer's coming in tonight. Or it's a new space we create in the arena to create a different kind of experience. We're finding people want social experiences at games. Even in Boston, right, where the, the, the game is sacrosanct, right? Everyone should be there because they just want to be fully focused on the game for 48 minutes. But, you know, uh, as Amy might have alluded to, we've created a new area in the garden called Rafters, right, which is up in the halo, which is, you know, where they, the scouts view the hockey games from, you know? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and we've got um, a club up there, which is really, you know, more of a, a social club, and it's a come to the games you want to come to, and, you know, eat and drink what you want, and you can customize it all for yourself. And, and I think that's where, where it's going, and that's how it's kind of manifesting itself on, on game nights in our arenas. Was creating rafters a direct result of insights that you gained from fan data? Yeah, it's... Um, I think some of it's fan data. I think one of the things that's really great about sports is uh, you don't have to infer a lot, right? So we can put out a survey to fans and get an open rate or a return rate of 60% of the people we send it to will not only answer all the questions in the survey, they'll give us another couple paragraphs of what they really think, right? Mm -hmm. So in the sports business, you don't have to infer a lot, you know? Uh, it's not like trying to get shelf placement in a grocery store, right? Um, and so we... Um, the best data we get is directly from fans. And what we've sort of gleaned is that there's a generation of buyer who wants something a little different when they come into the game. And they're looking for something a little bit different uh, than the traditional products and traditional spaces we have in there. Uh, it's interesting when we, we think about um, you know, fantasy and, and gaming in a day when you know, betting becomes legal, we think mm -hmm. you know, people are going to want to place places where they might not be a sports book, but they're going to want places where they can congregate right, to, to actually you know, place their prop bets and be, be able to see odds and things that are happening in real time, be able to place bets in real time. So it's all these sort of dis differentiated experiences within the, the greater experience. Yeah, that was one where I was hoping Jason yeah. could jump in here. What else is competing for the fans' attention when they're watching the game? So I think what's cool about a lot of these stadiums getting upgraded with Wi-Fi is it's not a trade-off anymore. And I think they're getting smarter also, the teams, about creating experiences and venues that don't make it a trade-off anymore between watching all the games and playing fantasy or betting and being at the venue. And the venue is almost becoming more of, I mean, it's sort of always this way to, to you know, speak to football. There's the tailgate party. People don't just go for the game. They go for the whole experience. And people were playing fantasy and betting. They're starting to create, we did some of these, uh, you know, at Gillette and also at other places around, um, you know, different leagues. We would create like lounges where you have red zone channel and other things on so people can actually follow the other games. So you think, well, why are you at the game if you want to be watching the others? But it's all part of one experience. And 
Uh, today's fan multitasks, maybe not well, but they do it um, because our attention spans are so, uh, so short more than anyone else, uh, more than any other generation's fan. Mm -hmm. So they do want to be there. They do want to be watching the game and watching other games and betting or playing fantasy and socializing and drinking beer and eating and doing all those things at the same time. And that's the experience they're looking for. And if you make it better at the stadium, then they won't want to do those things on their couch. They'll want to come to the stadium and do them. Well, and I, I agree 100% that being able to have the experience at the game that you can have at home is super important. I also think that the expectations of what fans are actually experiencing when they come to the games is totally, is totally changing. They want everything to be faster and seamless. So it could be everything from having grab-and-go uh, stands in that they're that is meaningfully changing people's experiences. How are you gonna obviously improve parking? How are you gonna get people through gates? And what's been kind of interesting is some of the challenges that technology, there's very, a lot of positives in what it's bringing to bear in terms of knowing your customers. But if you look at football as an example, you have a divide in terms of the demographics of the fan base. Some are super comfortable with mobile and technology and having their phone um, on, on having their ticket on their phone. Others want the hard ticket. And so we're at a very interesting time where you, you kind of have to provide both worlds. Some people are saying, you know what, it's, it's mobile ticketing only. It will obviously move towards mobile, but that's, this mm -hmm. is gonna be an ongoing kind of component because we do have an older fan base that still loves to go to the games. That's a great point. You're making technology is advanced so fast that you have a wider generational gap than I think ever before. And you guys have to figure out, uh, you know, Rich and uh, the other leagues and teams, how do you cater to different types of fans? And from an analytics standpoint, you're going to have much richer data on the people who are more technology enabled. So if you're just looking at the data, even if it's 60, 75 percent of it, you might actually get a skewed view of what your overall fan base looks like. That's really interesting. You know, we've talked for years now about having a mobile-first mindset, but it really is just in these last couple of years that it's been possible to just fully lean in there. Um, you said something interesting, Jason, in the prep for this conversation, uh, where you mentioned that it was just in 2018 that you know sports betting becomes legal, and just a year ago, New Jersey was the only place that had a mobile betting app. So your entire world is getting turbocharged right now. How are you thinking about mobile betting, what are the exciting advances that are happening there, and, and are you seeing this same kind of gap happening? Um, like, do you worry about this kind of generational gap, or is in the world of betting, you know, all good? Well, you know, because there's been uh, an illegal sports betting market for a while, a lot already has transitioned online. Um, and, you know, many people don't realize that uh, yes, there are still people who call up their bookies, but um, a lot of people go to some website or mobile site, usually offshore somewhere, and that's how they place their bet. And a lot of the uh, bookies have turned into money runners. They collect the money or you know, uh, take the deposits. They hop on a plane and fly down to the Caribbean or wherever, and that's how the money gets on and off the system, which uh, is, of course, the safest and most convenient way to do it for everybody. Um, so you know, I think a lot of that has happened. That said, Absolutely, there's a generational gap. I think one of the things that we're seeing is, in particular, uh, you know, for folks that are older, that are used to going to counters in Vegas and making bets, that is what they're comfortable with. And you have to start there with them in some cases and get them comfortable with you as a company before they trust you to be holding their money online and 
taking their credit card. And um, you know, inherently, they are wired not to trust you. They think of the book as someone who's out to get their money. And so um, you know, being a tech company and being a very customer-centric company, and um, you know, we think of ourselves much more in that vein than we do a uh, traditional bookmaker, uh, it is a, an adjustment. And there is a big difference between a younger fan who's willing to just hop on, put on their credit card, and you know, used to doing that in a variety of different places around mobile and around the internet um, versus an older fan who maybe doesn't do that as much in, in other facets of life and would prefer an in-person experience. Can I tie something together? Yeah, absolutely. So what's interesting is what's happened on the secondary market and the data that's now being made available to teams is hopefully what's going to be ha is going to be happening with the legalizing uh, of gambling, which is there's a tremendous amount of data that about fans and their and how they consume sports that is going to enhance and improve what all of the sports organizations are doing. So I think that's really important. And and that battle for the information and data is going to be a big topic over the next few years. That, I, I love that you brought that up. When I've talked to you, when I've talked to uh, you know the Patriots, the other teams, Celtics, when I've talked to the leagues, the NFL, that is the thing they seem to care about the most. Yes, everyone thinks there's a financial opportunity here, but the access to the insights that the data provides, and that's one of the reasons that the leagues and teams are so excited about live betting. Not only will it engage the fan, it'll tell us with the data what the fan's engaging with. You put all kinds of live bets out and people have options, what are they choosing? And that helps as they think about everything from the in-venue experience to even things like rule changes in the games. Um, I think you're going to see way more insight come from what people are doing in in-game betting than anyone is prepared for. The leagues and teams are all over it. I mean, anyone is in the mainstream consumer. But it's kind of a cool thing to think that what we're betting on can actually drive changes in the fan experience yeah. of the game. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, you know, we've, we've never really looked at gaming as a financial windfall to, to the Celtics or to the NBA, for that matter. It's, it's the windfall is an engagement, right? And the over-indexing of you know, fan engagement for people who are engaged in, in, in betting on games or playing daily fantasy. And so it's that information, it's that engagement that actually drives us because as people move away from watching you know, games on the big you know, flat screen television, we've got to find different ways to get their, their screen time, get in front of them, engage with them. And it's another way you know, to engage with our most engaged fans. Oh, and by the way, those same fans who are you know, placing these bets mobile, they're actually watching six times more television, which is great for us too. Rob, this obviously changes everything for media, and how are we responding? Well, first of all, I mean, I listen to this, and I flash immediately to my 15-year-old son, who has thankfully emerged from the Fortnite vortex, <laughs> which sounds funny and seems unrelated to sports when you think about what that actually is. That's a venue in which he's participating in playing. He is having an ongoing social interaction with a group of friends. He is purchasing more than I would like him to purchase. And all those, and he's seeing ads, he's seeing all of that in real time in the same experience. Um, and for the generation that grew up playing Madden, you never had to sit there and wait in between plays. You participated. You chose the next play. So there is a generation that has this expectation of no downtime in the course of our live events and an expectation of being able to participate either before or after. They had the expectation of participating with the stars themselves yeah. that came up earlier today. Like, you know, uh, there, there, are, there are athletes who've gone straight into 
social spaces in real time and gotten fined for it, but like, if, you know, like interacted with their audiences. Um, you know, anytime you've got. Uh, you don't want it too real time. Yeah, you well, During the game. But, that, but, but the generation of kids play, who play video games are going on to YouTube and having real lessons with the biggest stars on the planet. That's the backdrop against which we now compete. And so it does change a lot. It changes a lot in terms of the way in which we think about important content opportunities. That's why some of the access and shows that you see on ESPN Plus, which are really experimental, which give us the opportunity to work with, you know, we worked with the great Kobe Bryant, and we work with Kevin Durant, and we work with LeBron, and, you know, that's kind of a necessary animal. Peyton Manning, that's a necessary animal right now because we know that we're also up against a world in which Man, if Zion Williamson emerged four years from now when names, image, and likeness was a thing, he might not need to get a shoe deal. He had a shoe deal. He'd been done. And so direct to consumer. As we as we as we think about yes, direct to consumer, but as we think about any content, we know it has to be differentiated. We know even in the delivery, we have to be in places where people are. Watch the Snapchat channel. And it's the youngest demo we have. And 70% of the people who come to SportsCenter on Snapchat don't interact with ESPN on any other platform. And it's, again, against the backdrop of they're in an experience in which they feel as though they're participating. And so, you know, yeah, it changes the entire game. It makes us actually excited. You know, and Jimmy Pitar was up here earlier talking about audience expansion, but it's also really audience expectation. Social isn't just social media for us, it's social listening. We have to take this stuff and apply it to the way in which our audiences have gradually changed. Back to the theme. Yeah, it ties together a few things that have been talked about here around um, the changing habits of, of how much time people are spending, um, what platforms they're spending it on, different behaviors for different generations. Often that conversation seems to be about um, still creating the same thing and just watching it move from place to place. What are we actually creating that is different because of what we're learning about what people want from, from sports media? Well, I went through some of it. I mean, I think that we have some brilliant people in our um, social video, social engagement team thinking about wherever we need to be. We will be in Quibi when it emerges and we will learn from that space. We quickly got up to three million followers in TikTok. And you know, TikTok is uh, enjoyable uh, to, to watch, but I have daughters who are 12 and 11, and it's not just about watching, it's about participating. It's about being a renegade. You know, it's like, it's, it's a, different, a different level of experience. So we have to think about the experiences we create that offer that same opportunity. Um, we still believe in, Great storytelling. So, you know, we create a Michael Vick documentary and show it on linear and put it behind the, uh, our, uh, on our direct to consumer service, and it does really well. Um, we have moved into combat sports in ways that are, you know, truly exciting and differentiated, and it's led us to interact with a whole new audience. Um, so, you know, it's been a that's why I think you were asking, Jimmy seems so relaxed. It's, he's had a great, great last year because there's been a lot of change. It's really been about opening up our minds to the ways in which ESPN has to actively be where our audiences are. I think the important part is you've, you know, you've got the right content and then how you, 
utilize that content to serve different audiences, you know, varies. We, you know, there's no one fan and there's no one customer. So the way we engage with, um, you know, a 50-year-old lawyer who buys center court seats is different than the way we engage with someone who only follows us on digital media. We want to engage with both of them. We want to have a relationship with both of them. One of them is 100% of our fan engagement and our marketing is vertical, short-form digital content, which picks up on the same things you said. It's, it's storytelling. It's just short-form storytelling. It's access. It's unique experiences. Like around the game window, uh, we get so much viewership around these little things we do about, you know, the, the guys coming into the game and, you know, whatever fashion they're wearing that night. It's like a red carpet every night, right? And fans love, you know, tuning in for that content uh, pregame, you know? And, and it's interesting that that's become a part of what's expected, you know, for a certain fan, not, not for all fans, but for a certain fan. And that's how we're engaging with them mm-hmm. in and around games. So it's, um, you know, the important part, obviously, you have to have the content that they care about, but uh, the ability to sort of, uh, modify the content to fit the form, you know, for the audience uh, is, is what's really, you know, important these days. And uh, I know that's, you know, obviously it's ESPN's business. And I want to go back to the social listening part because to your point earlier, you know, the sports fans, they either cheer or they boo. Like there's no quiet middle of the road. And when you spend time watching the things that folks are talking about in the social space, the things that get them excited, the videos they're sharing, it does lead you to do some paths. It does lead you to paths of discovery, right? It, it'll lead, you know, a 57-year-old executive to use the term drip, right. you know. It's fashionable. Yeah, I, I, I know what it gotcha. means now, but like, you know. <laughs> so it's, it's a really important thing that we apply to the way in which, well, you know, this is the way in which we do storytelling. It is really material to the way in which we stay connected to the audience. And that is, it doesn't read as data analytics per se, but it is powerful information that, that helps us make good choices. So for all the folks who are in the audience trying to figure out how can they get access to the, the kinds of things that make your decision making smarter, um, before we head to questions from the audience, I wanted to ask each of you, what are the most powerful tools that you're relying on right now so that you can make smarter decisions? Realizing, by the way, that Kager is a tool. So <laughs> it's a little bit of a of a loaded question. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we, we have built a business around getting data from a lot of different sources to better, understand the, to better understand customers. So I think the key thing, if you're thinking about tools, is one, how are you going to make sure that the data, you trust the data? That's the biggest challenge for anyone, is, is the information coming in correctly? You know, I think you alluded earlier, it, are we capturing, or you did, Jason, are we capturing all of the right information about the demographics of the customers? Are we skewed in a certain way? We're very focused on that foundational piece. Then it's about wh- how, how, what new data might you need to create. So we see what's happening with gambling. We see, it, and the information, I'm very excited about that. You see what's happening with ticketing. I'm hoping at some point in time the media will s- share more of their uh, specific information with teams so that they can make better decisions about the types of marketing that they're doing to their customers. But you take all of that information and you lay it out at a consumption level for organizations to make more informed decisions. And the consumption layer can be data visualizations, it can be advanced analytics. All of these different elements help inform organizations or sports teams or sports leagues about what the customers want. Mm-hmm. Period, end of story. And, the, and then what do the teams or what do the leagues or what do the organizations do with that information to improve the experience? 
And that, that is the, the most challenging part that everyone is trying here. I think we have lots of people who know how to do the analytics and, and the thinking, but then how do they take it to the next level? So <clears throat> it used to be um, you know, 10 years ago, many of the tools that exist today didn't exist. A lot of the first things I ever worked on were homegrown tools. And um, now it's like a totally different world, this whole industry. And it's really come from two things. One has been a focus on it. Never before has anyone cared as much. And second has been the amount of data uh, and the, the different sources you can uh, get it from has never been greater. And being able to store, process, and make sense of that all is harder than ever. Uh, and I want to come back to something you brought up at the beginning, what you were saying I think is critically important. It starts with making sure that the data you're getting in is clean, that it's right, it's accurate, uh, it's stored and accessible in a way accessible. that you can get to, um, that doesn't take hours upon hours to pull. Uh, that part is really hard. And that's why a business like Jess's is so important because um, you know, years ago when it was not the kind of complex data sets that you have today, it wasn't as hard. Uh, and now that is an extraordinarily big challenge and that is where a lot of companies fall down. Once you can get past that point, there are so many different tools, so many different ways uh, that you can apply it. But making sure that you're actually getting the right data, making sure it's not getting corrupted uh, by other things, making sure when you're setting up tests, they're not getting muddy. There was a company I used to work at that um, we saw some test results and uh, I was just telling this story earlier today actually, and they just didn't make sense. Um, and there was one man, I won't say it was a person there whose philosophy was, I don't care, we're a data-driven company, you don't, it doesn't need to make sense, just do it. And I was kind of like, well, this isn't adding up. So I started digging in and I found out that people in the control groups were calling up the call center and they didn't want to upset the customers, so they're giving them the promotions and things that were supposed to be in the test groups. And it was because it was not connected to the website and to all the other uh, you know, aspects that were being controlled for the test. Um, so that's why it didn't make sense, because the test was wrong. And looking at it and questioning it uh, was an important part of getting there. And one thing I worry about is as data gets better and tools get better, people stop questioning it. And they, they, they just say, oh, the data says to do it, do it. But we, we like to say at DraftKings that um, if you can't explain it, then go back. It's not just do what the data is saying. And if you can't come up with a logical reason, it's not just to make sure it's right. It's also often that's where the insights come from. Because if you didn't expect a result and you get that result, if you can actually come up with an explanation, sometimes that leads you to thinking about something in a completely different way than you used to. Mm -hmm. I think it's why it's so important that people who are working in sports are fans themselves or that they're actually, they, oh, this feels off. I mean, it, it is super important. I'm glad you said the word people because I think our, our most powerful assets are the people that are working um, on real-time research and insights. We're constantly taking a step back and assessing how what we're doing impacts our audiences and gives us constant feedback about what we're hearing out in the field. Um, and then we have really great folks working in audience development in real-time, particularly within our our uh, digital team that is doing real-time experiments at all times, changing headlines uh, or doing multiple headlines across all of our groups and letting the best one win, uh, making sure that you know we are constantly aware of what seems to be working, what themes seem to be working, and the, those insights come back. We just got, we just have amazing people who are on this. Yeah, I would, I would say, um, <clears throat> you know, we've got sort of two, more than two audiences, you could segment it 
you know, very finely if you wanted to, but let's just sort of take the sort of ticket buying in arena and then the people who are generally following us all over the world, you know, through social media, digital media. And great thing about data today is, you know, we can, we can use data to really service both of them really well, you know, and with the people, we've got the one-to-one -one relationship who are coming into our building at night. We can ask them questions directly. We can get great insights and we can turn that into value. Um, for the people who are following us digitally, you know, we've created a, an internal sort of algorithm that allows us to look at our social media engagement through a different lens, not just how many follows did we get or how many, you know, um, likes or retweets, you know, or comments, but it's how does one do against another and then how can we A-B test different forms of content against each other, see what's really resonating. And you can get that data back quickly and you can modify quickly and you can do a better job of you know, providing the fan with uh, you know, the information that, that they really want in the form they want. And, and it varies from, you know, as we all know, from platform to platform, it's a different, um, you know, it's, a, it's a different logic, but it's all you know, really goes towards you know, building value for the fan and, and the business. Fantastic, all right, we're gonna take a few questions from the audience. Uh, this one sounds like it's for you, Jason. Um, what have been some of the most surprising data trends related to gambling that are emerging today? Uh, so a few things I would point to. One is, um, you know, I think probably this isn't as surprising maybe uh, as, as, uh, as I would have thought, but um, a lot of people are really uh, following and betting on their favorite teams and their home teams. And I thought at least in the initial adopter phase, uh, you wouldn't see as much of that, but uh, it is truly a way people are engaging. And the explanation that I hear is, I was going to watch the game and um, you know, maybe a regular season game, no offense to Rich's team in the middle of the you know, 82 game season, you can make it a little bit more interesting by throwing some money on it. So um, that's one thing that we've noticed. And we could see, we actually have a graph we did of New Jersey uh, and we know exactly where the county dividing line is between the Eagles fans and the Giants fans, because it is clear when the Eagles play the Giants, you know, which side, uh, you got a blue and green kind of uh, heat map that we did. And it like literally transitions from blue to green. You can see right at the spot uh, where it cuts off. So it's kind of interesting to look at things like that. Um, another thing that I would point to is uh, I've been pleasantly surprised at early adoption for in-game betting. And the reason I have, it's actually nowhere near where it's going to be and where it is in Europe today, but the products are incredibly underdeveloped. The amount of in-game betting you can do on US sports pales in comparison to in-game betting on sports like tennis or soccer, uh, which is because most of these platforms were built up overseas where sports like baseball, um, maybe not so much basketball, but baseball and NFL football and uh, you know, others have been less popular over the years. And you know, I think that, the fact that we're even at the levels we're at now shows there's an appetite for it. As the products grow, I think it will get even greater, but I thought in-game betting would barely register, and it's actually a fairly meaningful part of our, our revenue right now, and uh, I think there's a tremendous amount of upside there just by adding more things for people to bet on. Um, and then the last point I'd make is uh, the number one prop bet uh, at the Super Bowl is the coin toss. And, I think that tells us something. People are looking to interact all throughout. They want to, the set, not even, the game hasn't even started yet. They want action on the coin toss because they're looking to interact and enjoy every part of the game. And if I can make the coin toss more interesting, before it was just this thing they did before the game and maybe I care who gets the ball first, but you know, they're gonna get it the second half, so it doesn't matter. Now they got money riding on it. And um, you know, to me, that just shows that there's all kinds of different things that uh, over time we can come up with for people to bet on, and it just creates deeper and deeper engagement with the sport. 
Fascinating. Lots of ticketing questions here. I'll start with this one. When it comes to knowing who is purchasing tickets, are you able to track when opposing fans purchase? And do you think it's in the best interest of your organization or fans to limit those sales? Maybe we start with do you yeah. know and then average? I mean, you can generally identify it based on um, zip code and where and city that it's coming from. I think I, I, I don't think you should be limiting having opposing teams come uh, to a venue. I think it's important for people to go and cheer on their fans. Um, you're trying to ensure there's demand and interest, and one of the great parts of going to a game is the experience that you're having there. Um, it certainly is better if it's people who are also cheering with you, but I think you look at what has happened with um, the LA Chargers where their home games are actually away games for them because so many uh, teams are going there. That So many fans are going to their games. That, I think, is certainly very challenging. But there's also opportunities for teams when they know that there's um, visiting team fans coming to create experiences for those folks. So an unused asset is bringing visiting team fans or allowing them the opportunity to purchase hotels um, potentially on site, which the home people don't need, uh, or allow them potentially uh, on-field access on the visiting team side. So there's ways to monetize that and not necessarily make it this negative experience. Rich, how does that feel from the team perspective? Well, it feels good when you're on the road and half the arena is green, you know, and uh, <laughs> we, we get that occasionally. You know, our fans, Boston fans, as we all know, they, they travel well. Um, and I, I think, you know, the secondary market, you know, the liquidity of the secondary market has opened that opportunity up where it didn't exist before. In our own arena, um, and not, not all teams, but there are a few teams that suddenly, why are all these Knicks fans here? You know, and the, even when the Knicks aren't playing all that well, um, no, no, no intentional disparagement there. Um, the, when the Knicks aren't playing that well, there's still a whole bunch of people from New York who come up for the game because they can. And, and the value in that for, for the Celtics, not not so much having Knicks fans in, but providing a liquid market for our fans who might not want to go to a particular game. Part of their investment calculus these days in terms of buying a season ticket is, you know, what's the liquidity of the resale market? And can I get a return on my investment if I decide to sell? So to the extent that people from outer markets can actually buy tickets, that's, it's probably a good thing for our fans overall. So even if we don't love seeing them in the arena, um, you know, it's, it's overall, I think it is a good thing for business. Mm -hmm. Kind of an interesting question, though. Will season ticket members maybe at some point in time, if there's two people bidding on it, get to select in that, if it's an away team and a home team, a home fan? Yeah, I think usually the season ticket holder is somewhat disintermediated from the transaction, and it goes to whoever's going to pay the most money for the <laughs> ticket. You know, uh, but but I, I do think it's an empowerment for a season ticket member. You know, uh, there there was a time when we resisted the secondary market, and now. You know, we're in a high demand state for the Celtics and have been for a bunch of years. We, we don't look at our capacity as the 19,500 who can go in there a night. We look at like 2,000 more who can actually transact on the secondary market. And to the extent we can get that data and that information, there's 2,000 more fans that, that we can build a relationship with. So another one from the audience. How do you identify fans' interests when looking at what to deliver in terms of engagement and content at the stadium? I, well, there's a bunch of different ways to do that. Uh, first and foremost is actually surveying them and talking to them and getting their feedback. Uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier today. 
Um, the other is obviously looking at what other, outside of the industry, what are things that are enticing and bringing people. Um, I think right now, the kind of consistency we already, that we've mentioned before is people want to be able to have the same experience in the venue that they have at home in terms of maybe hearing um, what the broadcast sounds like, or I mean, I think in short order, probably within the next five years, we'll be able to uh, have wear glasses where you can see the, the first down markers and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. How do you see sports betting and e-gaming coming together in the next few years? Uh, so, I think that betting on e-gaming is going to be a massive category, bigger than anyone knows. Uh, I mean, think about it. Nobody really understood how big a spectator sport e-sports was going to be even five, ten years ago. Uh, and I'm of the belief that anything that could be a spectator sport uh, should have a fantasy or betting component to it. What's cool about esports is because the actual sport itself is being delivered through an electronic medium, you can get really an amazing amount of data in real time, more than you ever could possibly mm -hmm. hope to for something being played live on a court or on ice or on a field. Uh, and that just opens up a tremendous amount of possibilities. Another thing that's different is the publishers and the level of control that they have. Um, you know, not to say the sports leagues and teams don't, but they literally control the actual you know, game itself uh, being able to be, you know, th those types of data access, they can stop it versus uh, I think the leagues are still working to build that and we'll get there, but they're not there yet. And the other thing I would mention about it is the demographic is different, uh, tend to be younger, um, you know, tend to have different sorts of interests. So it's not going to be the same as saying, you know, hey, you're betting on football, bet on this other thing. We do see crossovers. We have fantasy esports on the products, but it's also a completely unique set of customers. There's a loyal following for fantasy esports, and that's all they play. Uh, so it's really interesting. And um, you know, I think it's still a few years off. There's some regulatory aspects to it. Uh, I think the states are you know, getting comfortable with traditional sports betting, uh, in some cases sooner than they are with esports betting. Um, but you know, it's a real thing, and I think it's going to be an important part of the future for us and uh, could potentially make the category uh, way larger than people even think. You look like you had something you wanted to jump in there. I don't. don't? I, got a, I got a 15-year-old son. That doesn't make me very comfortable. <laughs> Maybe that's what I was seeing uh, happening there. All, right, spent, so, all that money he's spending on Fortnite isn't free either. No. <laughs> so speaking of that younger generation, this uh, question is about raising ticket prices. Um, raising ticket prices have dri driven away many Gen Zers from the in-venue experience. How can you balance enhancing that experience while trying to lure in this demographic? Is the premise of that question fair? I, I do think it's fair. I'm, we're basically, you have these super high-end premium, premium experiences, which are, are for a certain demographic that people want, the convenience that we talked about earlier. And you have the get-in price, um, which I think has actually stayed relatively steady. It hasn't meaningfully increased. Uh, I, I do, I actually, I would say that I think the, the Gen Z are more willing to pay for the experiences, so the question seems a little off to me in that regard, um, but I think, I think sports overall does need to look at the ticket, ticket pricing. Um, what we're kind of seeing in terms of how, how teams are handling it is they're evaluating their venues and they're reducing parts of the stadium or parts of the venue or parts of the arena that are not of the highest demand. And they're creating 
more premium or they're creating more, um, I think like what, what has really taken hold in, in Major League Baseball is that you're just buying a membership pass without a seat into the venue and that is at a lower price because that customer cares less about the experience. So I think we're gonna have increasingly this divide of super premium and then get in the door and it's gonna be incumbent upon the teams and leagues to sort out what they're gonna do. The secondary market has played a big role in that. I would say for most, for most teams or many teams, there is a significant portion of their tickets, let's, I mean, not a significant, let's call it two to four or 5% that they are um, working with a secondary uh, um, or a broker to help move their tickets. The teams need to be in the business of engaging with their customers directly. And in my opinion, the secondary market should be for the, for the customer. I, liked, I loved your point, Rich, about the, the, the fan or the season ticket member being able to get their value if it made sense for them, if they were unable to attend the game. So it is, the secondary market is driving up the price because teams see that the tickets are selling, hopefully for most teams, above market value or above their, the price that their customers paid for it. And then we're increasing the price because we think that's what demand is. So it's, it's really gonna be an ongoing uh, discussion and battle. What are your thoughts from the team side of things? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult question, you know. I mean, where you wanna be in, in the team sports business is you wanna be in a high demand scenario because that's what gives you pricing power. And um, you've, you've gotta make hay when the sun is shining. So uh, it's, it's hard not to do that. But I think what you have to keep track of, and we always do, is you can't, you can't lose um, touch with a generation of, of buyers, so let's just say Gen Z. So what we've thought about with Gen Z is how do we want to engage with them and interact with them primarily through digital and social, and then how do we want to create differentiated experiences in the arena and differentiated products where the get-in price is a little different or um, it's pay-as-you-go uh, or once you're there, it's a more participatory event. Uh, how do we actually create you know, an experience for you? Um, we think about what are our Gen Z fans really care about. A lot of Gen Z fans really do care about um, teams having a social conscience and how can we actually, um, you know, demonstrate to them, you know, through, through our actions, you know, um, what our values are and, and our, our commitment, um, you know, to, to giving back. And, and so we try to create these different venues. Sometimes they're for groups, uh, they're spe special nights, promotional nights. Um, for someone who can't, you know, buy, you know, afford the full, buy-in for a, a full season ticket, you know, in the center low seats. All right, so as we close this thing out, one last question for me, for each of you. We can go right down the line. We've talked a lot about things that you do know about fans and things that you've learned. What's one thing that you really wish you could know about fans or what you think you need to know next? Rich, why don't you go first now? Oh. <laughs> go down one this thing line. I wish I think of an answer. about fans that I know. Huh. I'd, uh, you know, I, I generally, we're, you know, I, I sort of feel like it's a hard, we're, we're in a good spot in, in Boston, as, as Jess could tell you, with sort of, the, the fans kind of wear it on their sleeve. You know, you're not trying to figure out, are we connecting, are we engaging? You see it in front of you, um, the demand for all the teams in Boston, right? It's not just a one-team phenomenon. I mean, um, but, but I think what you, you know, you really do, want to understand more than anything is, are they feeling they're getting um, a great 
you know, value proposition. You know, our, you know, we're not inexpensive uh, for a family of four to go to any professional sporting event in Boston. And you want to make sure that no matter what happens, they, they, they leave that event and they say, I had a blast and it was worth it, whether I spent $40 on a ticket or I spent $400 on a ticket. And, and so that's what we're really always trying to understand most. And, you know, there's, there are ways to infer that and there are ways to directly survey and get that information back. But I think that's the thing that we spend the most time thinking about is how are we, you know, delivering that value and are we, in fact, delivering enough value uh, for the money? Yeah, that's, that's where I was going to go. It's really about how can we continue to really matter? Um, you know, uh, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about our live events and we create things and platforms that have nothing to do with our live events. How can we connect those things? Right? How, how can a TikTok experience or a Snapchat experience accrue to you know, somebody having a, another meeting with ESPN? Um, and we're working on that. But you know, we're in a lot of places trying to pull all those things together. It is, it is the biggest question because, as we've said it over and over again, we're here to serve sports fans. We want to be relevant always. And as they change, you know, we just want to know like, what matters most. I just want to know what they're watching, period. I want to know. They're, I, we know what they're doing in venue on, a more in, on an increasing basis and what time, when they're arriving at games, when they're leaving games, the information is very valuable. I want to know what they're doing the rest of the time in terms of their fan consumption. And that information isn't being shared today. Uh, I don't know if this exactly answers your question, but an area over the last year or two we've really started to ramp up investment in is uh, research aimed around understanding what drives brand affinity. Um, it's very, you know, I think, um, objective in many ways to say we have this product feature, our competition doesn't, we're at this price, we're running this promotion. Um, and you throw all those things out there and sometimes people don't respond. They stay with the competitor. Uh, and you can't figure out why. And I think there's an analytic component to it, even if it is a, an emotional attachment that's driving it. What are the attributes that they're attaching to that brand? What are the reasons that they're loyal to it? Uh, and we've started to put a lot more investment behind trying to quantify that and be scientific about how we're crafting our brand strategy and also how we're understanding our, our competitors' brands and why loyalty exists there and where maybe there's openings to differentiate that uh, currently aren't occupied by the competition. That's fascinating. Well, a huge thank you to every single one of our panelists. That is a wrap on Fanalytics 2020. This recording is the property of 42 Analytics and may not be published, broadcast, rewritten, or redistributed without the express written consent of 42 Analytics. Any opinions expressed by panelists are their own and do not represent the beliefs of the conference, 42 Analytics, or the MIT Sloan School of Management. 42 Analytics Educational, Inc. reserves all rights in the content.